<clears throat> one, two, one, two. This is a Romy cast. Never get tired of being Beatles. When I play the drums, then I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Hey, what? Oh, Can we just have a little less guitar in here for us? Oh, that's way. It's a trick. That John finally got just after that, and we both of us do what we want to do, and do what we want to do. If you think it was all keyed, you don't scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode is Canadian indie music icon Stephen Stanley. A Canadian indie music fans of a certain vintage will know Stephen first and foremost from his time with the band Lowest of the Low. Uh, Back in ancient times, uh, the 90s, uh, they created one of the great indie albums of the era, Shakespeare, My Butt, which Stephen, by the way, has some interesting news to share about a little bit later on in the podcast. Since leaving the band, Stephen has had a, a successful solo career. He's put out a bunch of albums, and he currently fronts his own band, the Stephen Stanley Band. The last studio album that he put out was 2017's critically acclaimed Jimmy and the Moon. Strongly recommend you give that a listen if you have not yet. It's a really good record. Uh, And he's all set to release a new studio record. It's called Before the Collapse of the Hive. One thing going on, though. They just need a little push financially to get them to the finish line, to just finish making the record and then launch it. So if you'd like to support that record coming out, Stephen has an Indiegogo campaign. Uh, It's to raise funds to put some finishing touches on the album and then launch it. So if you'd like to support that, follow the link on the episode page of this podcast. Or you can go to Indiegogo.com and do a search for Stephen Stanley Band. You can find the Stephen Stanley Band online at stephenstanleyband.com. He's on Instagram under the handle Stephen Stanley. And on Facebook, do a search for the Stephen Stanley Band page. The website for this podcast is romicast.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. If you're keeping track, <clears throat> I sort of am. <laughs> this is the 10th episode of Series 3. You can find all of the episodes from Series 1 and Series 2, as well as Series 3, at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. 
Okay, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different for the next couple of episodes with Stephen. Uh, I'm going to throw a few of these slightly different thematic episodes into Series 3, and this is the first of those episodes. So just some different things to to keep your eyes peeled for. I want to talk to, uh, I want to talk to a designer. I want to talk to an orchestrator. So just some, some different things to mix it up a little bit. So rather than go through an album track by track, track for this episode, I have had Steven select his 12 favorite guitar moments from the Beatles catalog. The playlist is on the episode page for this podcast, so you can sort of make your own playlist, your own uh, album, if you will, and uh, listen along as we talk about it. Uh, We'll call it the Stephen Stanley Beatles Guitar Moments album. How's that for originality? You think it'll fly? Uh, Stephen, always a pleasure to talk music with you. Great to see you, and thank you once again for taking time to talk to me about the Beatles. It's a pleasure, and, and we're kind of doing something a bit different this time than we've done before, not not concentrating on just one album, but concentrating on the guitar in the Beatles canon of great music. So. I know, well, I, I, I said in the intro that I, I want to do a few different, I'm using air quotes, folks, different episodes where we don't do the normal track by track for album, and, and this is the first one. Oh, cool. Uh, so uh, we're, on, we're in sort of uncharted territory, but before we, we tear into what we're going to do, um, I, I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah. I mean, what have you been up to? Your last studio album was 2017's yeah. very well-regarded Jimmy and the Moon. Jimmy and the Moon, yeah. Um, you know, I know you you do some work in the radio, but what, what is there a new album coming out? What do, what's keeping you busy? There's a new album that's that's pretty much done. We've got a couple little things to do, just a, t- a couple mixed tweaks. It's really it's really different than what we did before, and uh, I'm really happy with the collection of songs. The playing is taking it to another level and so yeah I'm really excited to get it out because uh, well, following you on socials uh, yeah. I, you know I've seen that you've you've been up at Wolf Island recording over the months is, yeah. is, is it basically the same crew uh, that you used on Jimmy and the Moon or have you brought in new people it's yeah, you're right. It's basically the same people. There's a few things like you know uh, Hadley McCall Thaxton did a lot of vocals on Jimmy and the Moon, and she has relocated back to Georgia, so she wasn't around during the sessions. And that, I mean, it really, recording on Wolf Island is really all about who's who's who's, who's in the neighborhood at the moment and what do they do and and you know so I have very deliberate things that I wanted to do Kate Fenner recorded some vocals in New York City uh, a saxophone player named Michael Blakely who's a New York guy recorded a bit of saxophone which is amazing uh, Kate's stuff is mind-blowing on this record and that so those things were done in New York with Chris Chris was traveling back and forth as the pandemic uh, eased up a little bit. Um, otherwise, it was all done there. You know, I mean, brought some people like uh, Jason Mercer, who's a bass player by trade. He came in and did some really amazing banjo and did some upright, uh, you know, bowed bass work in a couple of the songs. Um, but yeah, it's the same crew. Otherwise, you know, the band did what the band does. We we it was interesting this time because we reverse engineered some of it. Uh, there was songs that got written during the pandemic where with Jimmy we went in. The band knew all all. We started with fourteen songs and got it down to eleven or whatever. But the band knew them all. We went in and recorded the versions as the band had rehearsed them. This time, a lot of the songs started with me and acoustic guitar and vocal, and we worked backwards, which which I really loved. It really, and you know, what that causes you to do is 
sometimes stop and redo again because you know you get to a point and like okay that's not jiving with everything that the direction this has gone in just because you're doing it backwards you're not starting with bass and drums mm. so there was probably half the songs on the record started with that sort of traditional more traditional way of recording bass and drums first and we built on top of them and then the other half went backwards the other way and i to me i love stuff like that because it just it's a challenge i also loved watching the guys deal with it because you know i'm inside of their comfort zone and i think it uh creates well i mean you'll you'll hear it when the, when the album comes out i think it just creates something that's a uh, a little less formed that but I quite like that it it kind of flows a little bit and and Chris Brown has added some piano and keyboards on this thing that are just you know he kind of became the main instrument on the record wow which is just lovely I can tell you're really excited got a title yet yes the album's going to be called Before the Collapse of the Hive okay uh, which is a line taken from one of the songs and it really does kind of sum up thematically what's happening on, on the album. So I think it's a, it's a good choice. Looking forward to it. Yeah, cool. Um, now, uh, so we're going to go through, as I mentioned, we're going to go through a bunch of Beatles. And you were a guy who came to mind, a bunch of Beatles songs and talk about the guitar work on them. That would sort of be the theme of it. So my natural question to ask going into this, three guitarists in the Beatles, uh, McCartney played mainly bass, but a fabulous lead guitarist, George Harrison, of course, and John Lennon, mostly noted for his rhythm playing. Mm-hmm. Which one of those three do you think, if any of them, have influenced your approach to guitar playing the most? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's probably Lennon with a with a huge caveat because, uh, like, I I think you know, in studying these songs closer as we've just been doing to build up to this uh, day of recording, um, he's just there's just such uh, depth in the choices he makes with strumming patterns and the subtlety of it, or the really sort of like you know taking the the upfront lead with it, but then. You know, my, I think I, I mean, you know, probably not unlike a lot of people that are in my age category that play guitar. The reason I play guitar is the Beatles. And it's been this lifelong demystification of how all those, those three musicians work it all together. And every band I've been in references that over and over again goes back goes back to talking about well it's like you know the the interplay between the lead and the uh the rhythm in, mm-hmm. in that particular song and you're constantly trying to achieve something that may be unachievable just based on the you know sort of the timing and the fact that they were inventing so much um so you know when i was a lead guitar player in lowest of the low Harrison was a major influence just because that was everything I wanted to be, this sort of melodic counterpoint to the lead vocal. I, I never really wanted to be a shredder. I mean, I'm not a shredder and I never have tried to be, but I really believe that the lead guitar serves a purpose when it when it supports the song with subtle counter melodies or lines that carry it in a different way. And Harrison just... I mean, we're going to talk about that in a number yeah. of number of places, but he just does that so well. So it's hard for me to say that there's one or the other. And then, as you said, like you know, there's times where McCartney picks up the guitar and you know, like look at a uh, Blackbird. We're going to talk about that, and it's just you know, one of the best things that's ever happened on a an acoustic guitar <laughs> in the history of pop music. So 
Yeah, tough, tough call. But I mean, I think just the, the three of them together and how even, you know, even the bass was so integral to that, how it all worked together really made, made me the musician that I am, that was this sort of constant, constant uh, desire to achieve that perfect blend between rhythm rhythm lead and bass well i will put up in the show notes uh dear listener just check and i've got a list of all the tracks so you can put together a playlist if you want and uh, and just listen to the 12 tracks that you have chosen and we will go through it we'll we'll put uh, six tracks on each side of the album uh so let's go to good record yeah it's a damn good (laughs) record so so let's go to uh, side one cut one and it is and i love her I give her all my love That's all I do And if you saw my love You'd love her too I love her It got me thinking about learning to play guitar very early in life when I I, I took a... Uh, when I was... 15, I took a group guitar lesson my mom signed me up for. I was at a club near near where we, we lived. And I showed up on the first day thinking I was going to a guitar lesson with my contemporaries. And, and what actually happened was my mom had signed me up for a, a senior citizen's guitar class. So it was me, a 15-year-old boy, with uh, this five or six... I think it was three women and two men. And they were all in their late 70s and 80s. And... Uh, for some reason, I didn't go, oh, this is absurd, I'm leaving right now. I stuck it out for the whole nine weeks, and it ended up being a beautiful experience watching people sort of towards the end of their lives getting so much joy. There was one man, Cran, and he would sit across from me, and we would be playing stuff like Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, and things like that. Um, but it was all very simplified, and I remember the teacher, the teacher um, sort of told me to check into Mel Bay, which was a series of guitar. And this song reminds me so much of learning guitar from the Mel Bay method of guitar playing, where everything is just simple and behind the beat and the notes are so succinct. And this, you know, that signature riff that Harrison Harrison plays... It just makes the song. It makes the song what it is. And in fact, if you go to the anthologies and listen to some of the other recordings that are available through the anthologies, um, that riff doesn't exist yet. And they're playing the song really a little bit faster and very straight as a pop song. And there's a lot of um, a lot of discussion about you know George Martin making suggestions about what this song needed, like the solo, which is brilliant. On the, and you can. Uh, you can quote us what the actual. I know it was a Spanish guitar that Harrison was playing, but that solo um, they they take it up a semitone. They they raise the key for the, just the solo part and then bring it back down. Here is the great story. Uh, this is out of the. Uh, it's fairly recent. The uh, the the Paul McCartney the lyrics book, and uh, so I'll quote McCartney here. Uh, he has strong associations with the song involving two Georges, Harrison and Martin. So here's McCartney. We were about to record it, and George Martin uh, said to me, I think it would be good with an introduction. And I swear, right there and then, George Harrison went, well, how about this? And he played the opening riff, which is such a hook, the song is nothing without it. 
Another thing worth noting is that George Martin was inspired to add a chord modulation in the solo of the song, as you referenced. A key change that he knew would be musically satisfying. So we shifted the chord progression to start with the G minor instead of an F sharp minor, so up a semitone. George Harrison with the intro and George Martin with the key change in the solo, it gave it a bit more musical strength. Yes. Um, I had that same quote because that, to me, describes the song perfectly. And it's so wonderful that it happened in such a spontaneous way. And then on top of all of that, George adds that counterpoint guitar in the verse. And it's really cool because at the start, I think it's the start of the second verse, he plays the riff, boom, 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 and then switches to the counterpoint. And you realize that's all happening live. Like he's not, he's not able to overdub the two. But that counterpoint line... I think that's what I'm talking about when there's interplay between guitars like that where somebody brings in a piece like that that you wouldn't that wouldn't be an obvious choice and doesn't exist on the uh, anthologies versions previous to the one they ended up using and it just makes the song it just it just takes it up a level and it's just perfectly beautiful and you know like I said all kind of the whole song's played just behind the beat and that's that's been something to me that I've really focused on in my life as a musician. Like, and that all came from the Mel Bay days. For those yeah. of us who are non-musicians, describe to me what you mean by just behind the beat. Yeah, I mean, somebody would be able to give you a better technical description than, than I'll be able to give you. But to me, it's just everything just falling it's in your breathing when you're playing. It's everything just falling. So when you have a 4-4 four, four beat that's going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, the parts you're playing are landing just behind those beats. They're just they're just a subtle thing that you know the difference when someone's pushing on top of it because the song seems to feel like it's going to fall over. With the Beatles, they just seem to have it naturally. They all just sort of sat back and there was just this patience and pause in the music that kept everything so even keeled. I mean, there's lots, you know, I mean, there's lots of bands like, like, you know, if you put on uh, like, you know, especially older Pogues records, they're amazing records, but that's a band that, you know, would, would, would be very fast, loose and fast with the beat. It would move up and down throughout the song. Beatles weren't, the Beatles were like, you know, whether I mean I'm, I'm assuming it all sort of stemmed from Ringo it was just a metronome back there but it just 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 so solid well, and who is as as musicians will tell you who plays the beat on the back of the note partly because he was you know famously a left-hander playing a right-handed yeah. kit uh, and that's one of the reasons yeah. that he always was sort of at the back end of the note the guitar a 1964 Jose Ramirez Guitarra de Estudio classical guitar. So yeah. that is what he played. Um, interesting, another interesting thing about the anthologies version that is available for us to hear is the solo on that is on, uh, Harrison plays it on his 12-string Rickenbacker. Set aside for the uh, for the 
classical guitar when they do the actual version. Oh, it just would yeah. not would not yeah, work. I mean, would I not mean, work. You can add that to your playlist, folks, and like check it out because it's a very different version of the song. And and you know, and uh, George Martin was right. It needed these things to make it all the more satisfying. A uh, song has been covered many times. Uh, McCartney's favorite version is by a singer called Esther Phillips a U.S. R&B singer. She died uh, in 1984, unfortunately, only 48 years old. Hmm. Uh, She made her name in the 50s and 60s, and the kind of neat thing was the Beatles were big admirers of hers, and they actually flew her over to the U.K. for what were her first ever overseas performances. Oh, cool. So I thought that was a neat little story. Uh, So let's go to track two on side one, Uh, and this is uh, probably a, a riff or maybe an opening chord that I think might be as famous as bum 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 yeah it's been a hard day's night and I've been working like a dog it's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a log but when I get home to you I find the things that you do will make me feel the opening chord of A Hard Day's Night probably deserves a podcast unto itself. And, you know, you can uh, reference Randy Bachman on his radio show who deconstructs the the courting and tries to be pre- quite precise about it. But there's a lot of people that argue that he doesn't have it right. So it's it's quite interesting. Um, you know, I think I think the thing about A Hard Day's Night is I when I was building up to this list, and I have to tell you, my original list, I think you know, was probably like 32 songs. And I knew we weren't going to be able to talk about 32 songs, but it was hard to pare down to, you know, what we ended up with, 12 songs that are, are important guitar moments in the Beatles. I mean, we've left, we've left a whole bunch of things out. And I think what's cool about this is somebody else will come in and they could do this same show and probably give you 11 of the 12 different. The one thing I did do is I talked to a lot of musician friends leading up to this, and the one song that resonated with everyone was Hard Day's Night. Wow. Um, and I think I get it, because there's so much. It's not only that opening chord, it's the interplay of the the rhythm patterns in the song are so strange, and then you get to what may be the greatest guitar solo in Beatles history, which is that 12-string... Really? I think it's just amazing. And, you know, so this this is a good story about process, because I think musicians, and I'm, I've been guilty of this in the past, often get caught up with in the studio and, you know, something is taking too long to record and it becomes a frustration. And that frustration leads to probably you not putting down your best work on, on the tape. And the reality about music is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how long it takes you to get it, as long as you get it. So they slowed the tape down to half speed. The guitar solo is doubled by a lower register piano that George Martin plays. And you end up with that breakneck speed 12 string part that is amazing. And even at half speed, apparently it took George a long time to get it, but it is perfect. It's a perfect solo. It's like just, it, it does exactly what I described before. It adds 
another layer to the melody of the song that you can sing. You can literally sing da 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 That's a melody. It's this. It just is. It just it makes it adds something to the song that is not a distraction. It's not somebody showing off how you know fast they are as a guitar player. It's just adding another beautiful piece of melody to it. It's funny that you say that. You're the second of you know really good guitar player who I've I've interviewed. No, Mo Berg sat in the same chair you're sitting in, and we were talking talking about guitar solos and he used the same analogy he goes a really good guitar solo should be melodic like you, like you should almost be able to voice it the way you just did with Harrison's the way you can with his uh, his and she's so young you know you know you can and that's what he tries to do when he sculpts his solo so let me just give you the here is uh, this is a musicologist guy named Dominic Pedler, and this is his interpretation of the famous chord, uh, which he which he backs up. So George Harrison, and this will mean more to you, uh, an F add nine in the first position on his Rickenbacker three sixty twelve twelve string electric guitar. Lennon is playing an F add nine in the first position on a Gibson J160E six-string acoustic guitar. McCartney is playing a high D on the D string, 12th fret on his Hofner 501 electric bass. George Martin is playing D2G2D3 on a Steinway Grand. And Ringo with a very subtle snare drum and ride cymbal that is the chord yeah which is like like you said is as uh important an opening to a song as we'll ever know in our lifetimes well it's it's got to be for i mean beethoven's fifth certainly you know everybody knows that but in pop music i i can't think of an opening chord that would be like a single chord no Probably not. There's there's openings to songs that are instantly recognizable. It can be like the beat of a drum. It can be, you know, a little a little a riff or something like that. But as an opening chord, you don't need anything else to know what that song is. That you, you know it in, instantly by hearing that chord. Um, and yeah, it's fast. And I mean that it's fascinating that they went to that trouble to figure out those those inversions and how they work together. It's so funny you're talking about the names of chords because like I. I think, you know, I love experimenting with voicings as a, first of all, I don't think I'm a great guitar player, but I, but I, I love playing the guitar and experimenting with voicings. I can't name anything I, beyond G and D are, and C. Are you one of those guys? No, I'm totally oh. one of those guys. Like, so I do know that every possible thing you th- can think of has a name. And this has been fascinating going through this because like there's there's times when he's playing a G F A A D it's like and I'm like I'm just laughing because like I don't know what any of that means but uh I do know that experimenting with voices voicings is you know gives way to songwriting because you'll find something that you know you, that to you sounds different than what you know as that progression and that subtle change. Like, uh, we're, oh, this is a whole other story, but I'm doing um, 
I'm doing a gig with Andy Mays and, and Jane Gowan coming up pretty soon. And we're doing, a, the Skydiggers covered a song called uh, The Air That I Breathe. And that verse progression, which goes from G to B7 to a C major and then to a C7, that change from the C to the C7, it's just beautiful. It's just like the, like the idea that somebody went, oh yeah, like that. This we can play with the major and the minor here and create then the melody flow works perfectly. The Beatles were masters at that. Totally. They were masters. Yeah. Now, uh, now the, the chord, not surprisingly, it it, it, it was constructed, there was a, a method to to doing this, you know, and a lot of thought that went into it, and that came from George Martin. Uh, George Martin says, we knew that it would open both the film and the soundtrack LP. Mm-hmm. So we wanted a particularly strong and effective beginning. The strident guitar chord was the perfect launch. Yeah. So it was done with uh, with definite purpose. They wanted something big. Yeah. And if you've seen the movie, uh, which if you listen to this podcast, you probably has it does you probably have it does the same thing there. It's like bomb, yeah. and amazing. you're into the movie. Yeah. I saw that movie in the theater actually. Uh, which that was actually a cool story. I saw it in the theater. It was a re-release. I didn't see it originally in the theater. I wasn't. I wasn't. Wasn't old enough for that. But um, we basically at the end of the movie, there's like I, I forget which song it is, but there's a video, like a basically a staged video of them playing in a studio. That that was in the the re-release, and uh, they played over the credits. Uh, I'll cry instead. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That I, was that wasn't in the original. That was added okay, on for enough. the re-release. Yeah. But as a kid going to the movies, that when that video came on in the theater, the sound died. And they oh. refunded our money. So it's like, <laughs> we got to see the movie for free. And I was like, we well, probably didn't have to do that. We, we'd just seen the whole movie, except for that one little part. And, and the guitar solo you talked about, you, you know, you got it in. It's, it's, uh, it's Harrison on a Rickenbacker 12 string, and George Martin doubles it on a piano, and they yeah. record it at half speed. At half speed. And, and play it back. Uh, Jeff Emmerich, former Beatles and engineer, said that George would spend a lot of time working out solos. Everything was a little bit harder for him. Nothing came easily. Um, and then the song closes with Harrison playing an arpeggio of the opening chord during the, the fade out. The na, 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 yep. na, na. But are you surprised to hear that observation that, that the solos didn't come to George Harrison easily? No, I, that's exactly what I was talking about before. I think process and result are two very different things. And how, you know, I've known, I've played with a lot of musicians that, that are slower to get things in the studio. And at first, when you're young, you're like, oh, this is a drag and this is, you know, maybe costing us more money or whatever the case may be. But it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what the process is. To me, anyways, I think it's about the result. And so he has the idea and maybe the idea is bigger than his capabilities right at that moment in time, but he works until he gets it. And that's that's what matters. Let's go to uh, cut three on our- Oh, uh, I just want to add one thing about this, oh, this please one. Please do. And, you know, I mean, it's no, it's no secret that the Beatles at this point were recording only on four tracks, but this one kind of blew my mind because on track one of Hard Day's Night, is the 12-string electric rhythm guitar, acoustic rhythm guitar, bass guitar, and drums are on track one. So all that stuff that's going on, that's that's going on in the interplay between those four instruments is all on one track. And then vocals, and then they would dedicate tracks to like, you know, percussion and adding a second acoustic guitar and things like that. But that's a lot of density on one track. And just to get those, to get that balance right, which you're 
obviously doing off the floor because you once you once you've committed to four things on one track, there's no remixing going on. So it's that's stuff like that floors me because in this day and age, you would even consider that as a worry. You you know you can multi-track, you can record seven thousand tracks on a on a song if you want to and mix them till you're blue in the face, but that is mind-blowing. The balance between those instruments, which is so perfect on this song, is all on one one track. And, and, and just to, to, to tease that out for you, if, if you don't know a lot about the recording process or uh, if, you, you know, if you're perhaps uh, of a certain age, uh, the way it would work there, you know, Steve, as Stephen said, you, you got four tracks to work with. So you fill up your four tracks recording and then, okay, well, we want to add more stuff. So what they would do is they would do what was called a mix down and they would take each of those four tracks and they would put it onto one track but then you would have all four of those instruments locked in together for eternity on that track until now and it's a matter of when not if it'll be fascinating to hear when the the artificial intelligence demixed version oh, yeah. of a hard day's night comes out yeah. and they're able to pull all those apart again that's you know there's a whole that's another podcast. AI, I think AI should down. leave the past alone. Is what I think. Well, you know, that's that's. Uh, I've got the you know the sort of AI demixed revolver, and honestly, I mean, it sounds a little fresher. It sounds a little bit more like a a, a mix that you would do now, but I don't think it sounds any better. Well, I mean, on top of it, you've got somebody else making choices that that the band didn't make, right? So, I mean, you know, maybe, I'm not sure about that one. Maybe McCartney was involved with it or something. I'm sure he was. Yeah. I'm sure he was. But yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's go on to the uh, the next track, and it is cut three on our uh, spectacular Beatles guitar work album, Side One. Uh, it was actually cut three, Side One of the 1965 Help album, and you've got to hide your love away in the notes that you sent to me Acoustic progression, one of my favorites to play ever, so perfectly lazy. Here I stand, head in hand, turn my face to the wall. If she's gone, I can't go on, feeling two foot small. Everywhere people stare. Each and every day. A good portion of, of my list of songs was affected by me learning to play guitar and me learning to play along to the Beatles, which was that. I mean, that after I took a series of, uh, you know, that group lesson I talked about, and then I took some one on one lessons for about nine months. I just sort of locked myself in my room and played along to records, and that—that's how I learned to play guitar. And this lifelong demystification of the Beatles, like this was one of the first ones where it's like, oh, wait a second, this is actually something that I can figure out myself. It's like it's not a hard chord progression; it's played with a fairly consistent strumming pattern, and it just sort of feels like it feels like a campfire jam the way that the way they play it. Like Harrison adding in the uh, Spanish guitar, which gives you that smacking sound that kind of comes on top of what, what Lennon's playing. Like, it's just a perfect choice that most people wouldn't have made because you're like, when you think, when you think about, you know, that sort of Dylan strumming the acoustic guitar, which, you know, John Lennon refers to this as his self-professed Dylan period. He was trying to mimic the writing of, of uh, Dylan and he certainly did really well with the song. Um, but it's, it's simple. It's simplicity is remarkable, and 
being able to take a Beatles song and in a short period of time being able to play along to it, it meant so much to me as a kid learning how to play guitar. So that's influenced some of my choices on this list today. So that's why I, I love the idea that somebody else would probably go, oh, like that's not even in the top 30. But for me, this one's really important. Well, the, the song, uh, to quote McCartney, uh, among others, but McCartney says, is just basically John doing Dylan. Yeah, uh, which and I know you're a big Dylan guy, um, and the basic rhythm track was recorded first, followed by George Harrison's complimentary guitar and some extra percussion. Uh, a guy named John Scott recorded the tenor flute uh, in the spaces in Lennon's vocal track, and also an additional alto flute part. So they were dropped in after. Yeah, um, John is playing a Gibson. J160E mm-hmm. in this song. Pretty Very nice. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, Gibson's been sort of my acoustic guitar of choice for most of my life, although uh, this last record, uh, just through a, a series of circumstances, there was a collection of acoustic guitars on, on the island. And basically, I think I probably play acoustic on seven songs and each of them is a different guitar, which is pretty cool. And I've really come to realize, you know, with acoustics, like I, I had one this past week and I, I was doing some rehearsing that was a, like a small scale Takamine, older from the 70s, I think, or 80s. And it just had, the, the, every acoustic guitar you play has a different feel. And you start to realize that finding the right one for the type of song you're playing is so important and it can really affect how that sounds. And, you know, I mean, the Beatles had, like the, everything, everything that existed was available to them as far as choices go. So I think they made the right ones. Like this, though, and I really can't emphasize enough how much I think the the uh, Spanish guitar adds to the song. Mm-hmm. There's just such an overtone that you don't even. Until I read that that's what it was, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, that makes total sense because it gives you that. If you strum hard on a Spanish guitar with a pick, you get that kind of like. Like percussive smacking sound that you hear throughout the song. Anyways, it's amazing. No, they love their Gibsons. Uh, Harrison had the exact same guitar, Gibson J160E. Um, so, you know, they both love the. And then they, they both, uh, I think, uh, which we'll come to in later songs, uh, both George uh, and John. I think Paul was the first to get uh, an Epiphone, I want to say it was. Right. And yeah. then they both, they liked the sound of his, so they both got yeah. them afterwards and, uh, and, and on it went. And of course, famously, uh, uh, George was given the, the, the Rickenbacker 12-string on their last U.S. tour. That's where he picked it up. That's right. uh, and they come back from that, and, and uh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, it, it starts to become a, a fixture. Um, so we go to the next track, and it is, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic guitar song. It's a number one on both sides of the Atlantic. It's Day Tripper. So this again, an, a riff beyond riffs, right? It's, like it, it's just, like, again, for me, learning to play that riff in Day Tripper and then being able to play the entire song. So this, I, 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 
wanted to read this because I think this is quite funny. So the riff has both the overall shape of a non-symmetrical rising arch whose descent does not completely balance out its ascent, yet it makes an impression of upward-bound sawtooth angularity. <laughs> note particularly the way it drops a full <laughs> octave in the space of a single eighth note whenever, that, whenever it repeats. Harmonically, it outlines a bluesy I-9 chord with a flat seventh. Rhythmically, it places hard syncopations on the eighth note preceding both the first and third beat of the second measure. When, it, when its final three-eighths notes provide momentum that effectively leads into the repeat. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. I, I mean, <laughs> who, who did say, who did say oh, that? I didn't, Was it Ian, Ian McDonald by any it chance? It might have been Ian McDonald, oh, yeah. Man. yeah. Um, yeah, I love that because I couldn't, I could not be further away from my sort of visceral reaction to a song like this, which is just that that riff just sticks to you. It just, it just hits you hard and it sticks to you. And then they, this is one of the songs where they like achieve something vocally that is like just the, the heights that the harmonies go to in Day Tripper. Yeah, but I, I love this quote that you sent me. This is your, this is yeah. your, learning this riff when I started playing guitar made me realize that this is what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. It's totally true, and it's just uh, that's kind of my litmus test for anything with the Beatles. It's like, what effect did it have on me as a sixteen-year-old kid? And this one was like, wow! Like, you know, I remember who would it have been with? It must have been with with uh, the pre the band Popular Front prior to Lois to Low. That we were in a jam space and we played this one day, just just kind of you know fooling around, and it's like, wow! Like, so that's like. That's how it all works. That's this is how it, how it all works. And and uh, you know, I mean, obviously we didn't play it as well as they do, but it's it's precise. It's clean. It's a great guitar sound. Mm-hmm. Great guitar sounds. It is. Uh, they are playing. John and George, from my research, yep. almost certainly are playing Epiphone Casinos that they both purchased the previous spring. So almost right. 100%. I couldn't find any pictures. McCartney also had a casino, but he also liked to play his Fender Stratocaster uh, around this time. Uh, he was mainly, in terms of bass, he was using mainly his Rickenbacker bass at right. this time. Uh, so that, Very that, cool. So And there's two things going on in this song. You've got the riff, but then there's a beautiful rhythm, kind of this sort of messy, patternless rhythm that, that falls behind it. And I'm assuming that's Lennon, although he wrote the song, so maybe he's playing the riff. I'm not really sure who's doing what in there, but they they just, like, you know, I mean, you're hard-pressed. People wouldn't even be able to describe the the rhythm in this song unless you sort of think about it and go and listen to it, listen for it. But it's amazing. It's just this beautiful, ethereal, like, open strumming that just kind of follows underneath the the riff as it's happening until it locks into the chorus. Well, and I love the you referenced the vocals, but the it almost goes back to their their earlier songs like uh, you know like she loves you and some of those, yeah. but where it just uh, or, or, you know but where the Beatle thing where it just builds the excitement yeah, up yeah. of it during the guitar solo. When, uh, when the, you have a vocalist like Paul McCartney, there really was just nothing you couldn't do. Like I mean, I think, I think uh, if if uh, Get Back did anything, it solidified his place as a completely true innovator. The, 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 when you sort of see that 
just even that period in their career, what he can bring to each song as a variation vocally is is it's phenomenal. It's like it's phenomenal that, that these four people found each other and made music together. It's phenomenal. Um, John Lennon had the initial idea, and he collaborated with McCartney to complete the song. It was written at Kenwood at Lennon's house. Uh, that's his house in Weybridge, Surrey, uh, in October of 65, based on 12-bar blues in E, switches up a tone, F-sharp for the chorus. Um, his inspiration was a song called Watch Your Step by Bobby Parker. And that's... Uh, it, it, that's an interesting listen. So, I mean, if t- t- as a comparative thing, I would go, you know, turn us off for a second, go and listen to the two tracks, and then come back and join us again. <laughs> McCartney's recollection day tripper was to do with tripping. Uh, Acid was coming in in the scene, and often we do these songs about you know the girl who thought she was it. But this was just a tongue-in-cheek song about someone who was a day tripper, a Sunday painter, Sunday driver, somebody who was committed only in part to the idea. Whereas we saw ourselves at that time as full-time trippers, fully committed drivers. She was just a day tripper. That was the song. It's a great one. It <laughs> is a, it's great a great one. one. Uh, next cut is a fantastic song. Another one. Uh, it was uh, originally cut two on side one of 1965's Rubber Soul. Uh, your quote to me was the greatest guitar song of all time? Question mark. Norwegian Wood. Of course, we will vacillate on what that, what that uh, song, which song gets that title. In the context of the Beatles, like I just don't think there's a, a more sort of signature riff that's played. You know, what, one thing that was interesting is the anthology's version. Um, there's a lot more sitar on the anthology's version. Like it starts the right off the head. The sitar comes in playing the lead line. Whoever made the decision to like pull that back and let the acoustic carry the riff through once to me to find the song because that the precision in playing that part that Lennon's playing on the acoustic 
is, it's just beautiful. It's just perfect. And then the sitar comes in the second time through and really punctuates it nicely. This is George, this is George Harrison's first foray into the sitar as a recording instrument. Um, and it really, you know, it really is, an, it, what it adds to the song makes this a, an all-time classic for sure. What I have in my notes is the second version was heavier and added the, the sitar intro. So they tried it, A, heavy sitar, no bass. And a girl, or should I say, she once had me. She showed me her room, isn't it good? Norwegian wood. And then they eventually got to take four. That's the one you hear yeah. with the sitar dubbed after the rhythm track had been laid yeah. down. So that's what they did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just amazing. And this one, you know, definitely falls into that category of. The day I learned to play Norwegian word was the day that I considered myself a guitar player. Like it's just, it's just, it's just so beautiful, and it's just so beautiful that it's it it everything capitulates. Like it just the the riff circles and completes itself perfectly, and comes back to the you know the the head and the tail kind of match up, and and you just can circle through the song, and then the subverses that are that kind of cut against everything he's playing, and, and it's just the perfect the perfect sort of padding for the vocals to sit on. It's, it's, it's amazing. I'm surprised that you would say, so what makes this, question mark, mm -hmm. the greatest guitar song? I, like, as opposed to A Hard Day's Night? Well, so, I mean, oh, that's a good question, but I think maybe it's just, it's containment on the acoustic. Like, there's this, there's this sort of adage that... Uh, any song worth its salt, you should be able to just play it with an acoustic guitar in your voice. And if it if it holds together that way, like this one is exactly that. Like you don't need you don't need all the other stuff. And I mean, obviously, in a recording situation, they've added a lot of flourishes that made it great. But that song lives and dies on that acoustic guitar. It, it's all there. And so you know, I mean, every every cover band in the world, every guy playing a, a pub on a Saturday afternoon has thrown Norwegian wood into their set because it's just such a perfectly, it's not so much that it's easy, but it's just so perfectly uh, contained and in, in that little space gives you so much. Harrison is playing a 12-string acoustic guitar. I couldn't figure out which type. Uh, Lennon plays his good old dependable Gibson J160E on this song. Um, I've got to ask you, because mm -hmm. it's on the track. Have you ever picked up and tried to get some sounds out of a sitar? I never have, no. I've never been near a sitar that I can think of, which is interesting. I'm surprised we didn't encounter one in Vancouver because there was like a, a lot of in instruments around. No, so I've never had the chance to do it. I would love to, but never. never I, I wonder, if, like you know, the famous Beatles story is they were filming Help, and it was the scene, and the, they were sitting around shooting the restaurant scene. If you've yeah. seen the movie Help, uh, and there's a in the movie, uh, there's a, an Indian band playing in the corner, yeah. and I guess between takes, Harrison went over and sort of picked it up and started fiddling around with it. Um, but it, I wonder, you know, you wonder how it it clearly possessed him right from the first 
time he picked yeah. one up and tried to get a sound out of it. Well, and they were they were spending a fair amount of time in India shortly after that, right? So, the, the, so I think the mysticism of it all really affected his take on the instrument. And he was, you know, if you look at watch watching Get Back, clearly Harrison was looking for something else. Like he was just looking for something other than being in you know, a pop band. And, I, you know, I think uh, hopefully as his life moved on, he realized how amazing what he accomplished was in the Beatles was, was so amazing. But he was always kind of looking for something else, don't you think? Like, I mean, like the, the stories that, like you and I did the Wilburys the yeah. first time. Yep. And the stories about him and the excitement he had in putting that band together, he was always looking for something a little bit different than what he was doing. And... He was he was clearly restless in the Beatles, and also you know he was being dwarfed as a songwriter by two guys that just had no boundaries. They they couldn't stop writing songs. They just wrote and wrote and wrote. And Harrison, you know, like that that line in uh, with uh, Rick Rubin when that series that McCartney did when he's talking about he thinking that Harrison was a reluctant songwriter, and then one day essentially became one of the best ever. Mm-hmm. Like he really, he sort of embraced it, and I, you know, I think a lot of people would probably refute that because I don't know that Harrison was reluctant. I think he was just not being given the space. And I know that experience. I know the experience of being in a band where somebody's a very prolific writer, and you just don't feel like you can get something in the door. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I remember in one of the other podcasts that we did together uh, talking about it, and I think we went down this path a little bit. Sure. And, and you said uh, it, it could be one of the most nerve wracking gut-wrenching experiences to go in and, and play this song to your fellow bandmates just yeah. fearing that you you could it could be a total rejection and yeah. you'd feel like it's shit. A, it's the toughest audience you, you'll ever play for is the people you're making music with. And, you know, in a band like Los to Low where, where there was parameters established, those parameters didn't include me as a songwriter very often, so it was it was a it was a tough one for sure. Yeah, and so I left the band. I don't have the problem anymore. Well, well, <laughs> <laughs> well. I want to get to I want to get to a little bit of lowest to the low mm-hmm. here. If, if if you've opened that door, and I mean, sure, uh, we're we're close to halfway through this exercise, and we're thirty one plus years in the watershed from the release of one of the most iconic indie albums in Canadian music history, nineteen ninety one, Shakespeare, My Butt. Uh, released by your old band, the lowest yeah. of the low, uh, and it, it's it's a funny album that that didn't really start out as an album from the the story that I know, and of course there's an additional twist now that we can let people in on. Uh, I understand you were doing a little bit of basement cleaning recently, basement cleaning. And, and you found something. Yeah, like in the I think at the somewhere around the end of the first year of the pandemic, I was doing some you know deep dive cleaning as people were wont to do around then, and I found that I, I didn't know I had these, but I had the original multi-track recordings from Shakespeare. So that became a whole thing where we took them into to um, uh, Pheromone Studios. Pheromone Studios, is that what it's called? No, uh, yeah, Pheromone. And uh, we baked the tapes, which you have to do when tapes have, are ancient. They can't just be put on a reel and played. So they were baked and then digitized. So we were able to sort of experience going into the studio and hearing all the individual tracks of the record again. And a number of things came out of it that, to me, that were very interesting. But like one of them was there was only one guitar part, which was, I think, in the song Under the Carlisle Bridge that didn't end up on the record. Some part that 
either Ron or I had played that we decided, and none of us remembered it, but we decided it didn't fit. So it struck me that, you know, even though we were kind of like a bratty little post-punk band, we were pretty precise as players. Like we'd, we'd put the work in to get to that stage of making that record. And as you said, like it really did start as what was supposed to be a demo process. We didn't, we, I mean, that band just kind of went from zero to 60 so fast as far as its growth. We didn't even know how we were going to afford making a record. And we also didn't know if it was worth making a record. We'd, we'd been a band called Popular Front for four or five years, and that had just produced nothing. And it was like we got to a point where it's like we're either just going to part ways or we're going to try this other thing that's a little bit different than what we've been, we've been doing because Ron had switched over from being the bass player to a guitar player, and we brought in John Arnott as a, as a fourth member as a, to play bass. Um, and it was a different different set of songs too. So we were we were just kind of experimenting. And our friend Andy Koyama, who produced the record, um, we went in for a day, which we did pay for it at uh, Metalworks, and recorded all the drums in one day. Dave recorded 16, 16 songs in one day on that record. And then we, over the next nine months, we would use off hours at a place called Filmhouse, which was a, a film music production studio. And we would go in at nights or like Sunday at six o'clock in the evening and work overnight. And whenever he had spare time, we would just, you know, pick away at making this record. That, And as that was happening, something started to happen live and the band started to grow. So once the record was done, like it was right place and right time. The band, like if we hadn't have made the record, we would have missed an opportunity. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden we had this album that, you know, for whatever reason, like CFMY in Toronto picked it up and started playing the heck out of it. Like they played five, five top 10 singles. They loved and, it. Yeah, that's in, where I heard it first. In, yeah. In 92 and 93, we were the most played Canadian band on their station. And that's saying something because they, they had mandates of how much Canadian music they had to play, which was a lot. So... Like it was, it was incredible. It was an incredible time, and I, just, I do think it's funny because I've never thought of it from this point of view that we're talking about right now. But it was a perfect confluence. Like we had, we were sort of picking away at this record, not knowing what we were going to do with it, and then all of a sudden we started to grow live. So once we were at that at that moment, we had a record ready to go in the can, and we put it out. At sold the end it, of sold it at your gigs and all that kind yeah. of thing. Well, 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 but so just we'll get back to the Beatles in one sec. But sure. so you've listened to these, the, the you know the multi tracks. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so when you listen to your guitar playing then compared to now, what would you change? Would you have been more bold? Would you have taken more chances? Would you have been a little bit more laid back? Would you have leaned in a little bit more? You know what? I don't think I would change anything. I, I really like what I brought to that band and what I brought to that record. I think it was really, it was very uh, from the heart. It, it was exactly, if I had to sort of describe myself as a player, it was melody that supported the melody. It was always adding something in that was another part people could sing along to. And it was a bit of a signature line that would lead you into the song or whatever. And it was always simple. It was I would I never tried to play beyond my means, and I'm a pretty simple player as it is. I just like kind of finding voicings and finding ways to support the song. What are you so, going to do with it? Is it is it going to? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not in the band anymore, so <laughs> I'm not sure. I know it. Our Andy Koyama took it and remixed it, and I've heard them, and they're great. And it sort of removes removes all of that. Uh, 
90s extra reverb and extra sort of trying to make something more spacious than it actually was, which you didn't need to do. Um, so I really like the mixes. I don't know. I mean, it's not that I haven't spoken to them, but I don't know. Don't have an answer because I, I think maybe they have been to that well so many times. Like, how many more times can you release the same record? Um, so I don't know if it maybe it'll be something that they'll put out as a hey, here's a here's a free download if you want to hear the an alternate version of it. Because I think people will want to hear it. Yeah. I, and it's really inter- it's interesting from that point of view. Um, it does change it. It changes it in a way where you're still hearing. I mean, nothing. None of the music's changed. Nothing was added to it, but you just hear a little more precision in the mixing and a little less wah, kind of like <laughs> wafting in the. But you know, whatever. I mean, we were never we were never really happy with the way that album sounded. But in the same breath, it did so well for us. Like, how can you argue with the, the success that it had? Consistently, when you see lists, you know, greatest Canadian indie albums of all time, I mean, it moves up and down the list. Yes. It's always on the list. Always You're the top down. of the list. Good music survives, though. Yeah. Uh, so we'll go back to some good music that has mm-hmm. survived, and it is the last track in our imaginary uh, side one. I think this is one that I love, and we've talked about before in a, a past episode of this podcast when you were talking yes. Magical Mystery Tour. Such a lovely song, though. Uh, your quote to me: "Love the melody line Harrison does in the chorus. So simple, but perfectly placed. Second time through." Replaced by vocals, third chorus, back to the guitar line. It is hello, goodbye. Yeah. I think this is one that I would would sort of bet heavily that wouldn't end up on a lot of people's lists. But to me, that line, that dun 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 dun, dun and then later on in the next verse, it comes back, "Hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye," and then in the next verse, it's like dun 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 dun. dun. It's just genius, and it's just so simple, and it sounds so great, and it's stuck in my head from the moment I heard it to this day. It's it's always there. That dun 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 dun. dun. It's undeniably one of Harrison's greatest moments, and he's he's only just repeating the. The vocal melody, like so, he's just he's just lifting it straight out of the vocal melody. But just the way he plays it with this sort of staccato 
really, you know, again, behind the beat and very sort of uh, almost clumsily, you know, but it's just, it's so great. talking about a song that you know people are very dismissive of like hello goodbye which i don't i don't agree with myself but i mean lennon hated it because he thought it was dwarfing uh i am the walrus as the as the he ended up as the b-side of the single yeah that this was and you know i mean i i agree with him i think i am the walrus might be my favorite Beatles song period yeah um not a guitar song so it didn't make this list um but Hello, Goodbye, that line gives it a place in my list of the top 12 guitar songs. Well, I do have to add this, right? Because you're absolutely right. The story is uh, Hello, Goodbye was selected as the Beatles single for 1967 Christmas season. They would usually put out a Christmas single. Um, A dismayed Lennon, this is the quote, (laughs) uh, pushed for his composition, I Am the Walrus, to be the A-side instead. But he was overruled by McCartney and George Martin on the grounds that Hello, Goodbye was the more commercial of the two tracks. Lennon remained dismissive of the song and he later said, I Am the Walrus was the B-side to Hello Goodbye. Can you believe it? Well, here's the bottom line. McCartney and Martin were right. It was number one, Hello Goodbye, for seven consecutive weeks on the UK chart, their longest run at number one since She Loves You. Yeah, and you know, I mean, and beyond beyond the Lennon's facing the controversy of whether it was a better song. I can see why he wouldn't have loved this song just because it's it's one of those McCartney's kind of thematically throwaway. It's like he's not he's just doing counterpoint with hello and goodbye. Yeah. You say yes, I say no. Like there's nothing being said. Like there's nothing being said, but you know, but sometimes just great melody is all you need and like for me as I said, it's that it's Harrison playing that line bringing back the thematic line every chance he gets in the song, and then them making the decision to sometimes use vocals and sometimes use the guitar. I love it. Yeah, I love it too. I mean, I've, I'm. Uh, I mean, <laughs> they don't they don't need me to acknowledge it, but uh, I mean, just another example of what a, a genius of a songwriter. I, I don't know that there's there's been a better writer of pop music in the history of the genre than Paul McCartney. If you take his body of work with the Beatles and his body of work as a solo artist, I mean, who's, who's Nobody, better? Nobody touches it. Yeah. And yeah. then when you contextualize it all with, like a, with a series like Get Back, you realize he was just a catalyst and an engine. And sometimes, you know, that engine would drive over people and that wasn't, that wasn't Good a fun put experience. It. Yeah. Good but way to put it. sometimes that's what it takes to... Keep it moving. I mean, it was like that was an interesting period to see that period encapsulated. To me, you've got George Harrison who's kind of looking for a way out. To me, Lennon, it's not that he's not there, but he's. I mean, you know, the subtext seems to be that he's dealing with some drug things, and and that he's not. He's not a vocal participant in a lot of the creation of the songs. He's totally there for the, for what he's playing and creating, and and they're creating amazing stuff together like that. And it's funny because in the end, that record, um, I only chose one song from. Yeah. But I think that is the like 
archetypal guitar record of all time. Paul McCartney's like just is this catalyst, just pushing everything forward. And whether for right for right or for wrong, like there's a, I mean that that scene in in Get Back where where they say you're seeing McCartney play Let It Be for the first time, and everybody else in the room is kind of like, oh, what, what, whatever. It's like like this is like. There's so many things that floored me about that. Maybe the one that floors me the most to this day is that everybody that was experiencing that rooftop concert, where we will never be able to know that as anything but songs that are like dug into our brains, they were hearing that music for the first time. And that blows my mind. Just the idea that, you know, I mean, the visceral, re visceral reaction that they're getting from the street, from the people that are up on the roof. Those people don't know those songs, and that's amazing. But what was cool about that uh, is that when they're doing the streeter interviews, uh, as we go down this rabbit hole, which is a good one, yeah. but the, the, there were a couple of uh, you know young ladies, uh, probably early twenty uh, yeah. women, and I remember I still remember the one the one chick. Her her response is just sort of, "Oh, it's the Beatles, of course." Yeah. Like they knew, like yeah. they, 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 even though they'd never heard yeah. the songs before, they had such a distinctive sound. She was well; it's, it's obviously yeah. the Beatles. I mean, you know, we also live in a time now where you know there's seven zillion bands, so it'd be hard to make that distinction. In those days, there was a lot less people playing music in general, and you know, you also have the proximity of where they were in town and things like that. But but yeah, it, I mean, it's an unmistakable sound, and it still is to this day. But that that little sort of kernel of knowledge that those were the first performances of those songs. It's just... The uh, the guitar in Hello Goodbye, if you've seen, uh, you see photos from the period or if you've seen the Magical Mystery Tour film, uh, Harrison is playing, it's a Fender Stratocaster that he called Rocky and it's all painted up as you would have at the time. Right. Uh, it's all the, got the psychedelic painting all over the front of it. I believe his son Danny still has that guitar, uh, but called Rocky and it's a Fender Strat. And that is uh, what uh, the distinctive sound of the guitar line in Hello, Goodbye. So uh, I'm going to have you back in the next episode and we will dig into side two of your Beatles Guitar Moments album. Yeah, it was a pleasure. It totally is a pleasure. Dude. Hey, uh, the pleasure was mine and I look forward to the next time. Uh, dear listener, if you have enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes for that matter, please do consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this podcast. I know most people don't donate to podcasts that they listen to. My hand is up on that as well. However, I'd really appreciate it if you could help out with this podcast. Any little bit helps. Uh, if you can afford it, please do donate something. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, then give me a little bit of support. You can do that by going to the website and clicking on the support the walrus button. You can follow this podcast on the usual socials on Twitter and Instagram. I can be found at the handle Romanuk Paul on Facebook. You can do a search for the walrus was Paul podcast page. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at the dot at gmail.com. That is the a period, romicast at gmail.com. And of course, positive reviews and shares on your social channels always help out. Uh, just a quick reminder about the Stephen Stanley Band Indiegogo campaign to get their new album out. Head to Indiegogo, do a search for Stephen Stanley Band. You can help out there or uh, make it really simple for you. There is a link right to the campaign page in the show notes section on the episode webpage for this podcast. 
podcast at romicast.com. Uh, if you're enjoying Stephen's comments and observations, I would urge you to check out a couple of other episodes. In Series 1, Episode 5, Stephen and I dig into Magical Mystery Tour. And in Series 2, Episode 5, Stephen talks about the Traveling Wilburys. Uh, he's a big Beatles fan, but especially a big Harrison fan. You probably picked that up in our conversation. And a big Bob Dylan fan. So it kind of all got wrapped up there in that Traveling Wilburys episode. Uh, you can find both of those episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at romicast.com. Just a bit of time left for what have I been listening to lately? Uh, a couple for you this week, one old and one new. First, the new. Just out, just out this week as this is being recorded, Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds first studio album in six years. It's called Council Skies. Uh, two plays in so far, and I love it. Uh, no doubt who the songwriting talent in Oasis was, that's for sure. Uh, even maybe he did borrow a little heavily from the Beatles. But I guess if you're going to borrow, borrow from the best. In any event, it is a great record. Council Skies by Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds. Double thumbs up for that from me. Uh, the old, I picked up a vinyl copy of the 1972 Steely Dan debut record, Can't Buy a Thrill. Great record. And this edition is remastered from the original tape and pressed on vinyl that plays back at 45 RPM rather than the standard 33 and a third. Uh, I, I won't go into a great deal of detail uh, to bore you with, but it, what it does playing it back at 45 RPM and cutting it at that speed is it gives you better sound. It gives you deeper bass and all around better definition and isolation of the instruments. This copy sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, those are my recommendations this week. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, please consider making a donation if you can afford it. Click on the player or go to the website to do that. Positive reviews and shares on your social channels don't cost anything and they do help out. That is it for this edition of The Walrus Was Paul. I'm Paul Romanuk. Pleasure as always. So long for now. Get tired of being 